Welcome to Brick Moon Fiction. The theme for this month's short story podcasts is, timely enough, liberty. It's one of the founding principles of the American Constitution, and yet there's no consistent agreement on who is entitled to it and to what extent. With that in mind, we set our writers out to explore this theme with one other requisite. As a true sci-fi homage, they had to incorporate the Statue of Liberty in each story. Enjoy. Brick Moon Fiction presents Professor Gordon P. Fledgeworth and the Cleanup Crews by Sam French Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle Professor Gordon P. Fledgeworth was a strange and small man whose wrinkled face could hardly be seen behind the extravagant contraption of eyeglasses, microscopes, telescopes, and other various lenses that he was prone to wearing on his face. Under it all, he needed a shave. He scurried to and fro amongst the shadows of abandoned buildings like a scavenger, like a rat, like a secret. He slid through small cracked gutters and lived in the warped passageways below the city where he had several different locations marked by piles of rubble-slash-treasures. He was alone. He wasn't alone. He certainly wasn't the only one of his kind. If you met him for a cup of something underneath the shade of a rare tree, he would tip his glass forward until the liquid nearly slopped over the rim of his glass, and he would reminisce about the past. He would throw out dates like they were names, names like they were facts, facts like they were family members of which he had none. He loved the feeling of old books and the smell of the twentieth century, of which he had never known, but missed dearly, just like the nineteenth and the eighteenth and the seventeenth and the sixteenth and the fifteenth, and so on and so forth, and if you ever meet him for a cup of something underneath the shade of a rare tree, he will be happy to tell you all about millennia warped. He's a collector, one of the few that are left, honestly. He's the man fighting the changing currents of time, the whiteout by future's hands the silencing of echoes in halls that no longer exist, a life versus the damned clean-up crew. It's boring, boring work, but it's very dangerous. Once, years ago, when his left leg was the same length as the right, he was chased through the antechamber of a once-famous museum by a pair of German shepherds who had been trained-slash-employed by the clean-up crew. In the left pocket of his trench coat was a small painting, six inches by seven, and he was willing to risk his life for it. The cleanup crew was only willing to risk the lives of two German shepherds, named Otis and, in the new tradition, P-17X, for it. For its protection and, ultimately, its destruction. He barely escaped that day, but the painting is hanging somewhere. Somewhere it is commented on every now and then by people who are fortunate enough to see it, to remember. They are then given access to a time that was maybe better, they remember the past and then can dream about things foreign from the certain present. They can become agents of change. Because of that painting, and specifically because on that day, Professor Gordon P. Fledgeworth ran faster than Otis and P-17X. He has a lot of things that he values at similar rates as that painting he stole. He has a rotting wheel from an old wagon from the West. He has several pages of the sixth book in a series about a teenage wizard prodigy that was once very culturally significant. He has between eight and thirty-seven baseballs with the autographs of ancient heroes. He has a piece of the Berlin Wall. He has old Polaroids of people wearing Mickey Mouse ears, of people standing in front of what was the Jefferson Memorial, of strangers holding their children for the first time. He has a pogo stick. He has coins from over sixty-two countries, most of which have long since ceased to exist. He has all but one piece to a very large puzzle, he has a script of a popular movie with the director's handwritten notes scrawled into the margins. He has art, and history, and other such things. If you asked him why, he would implore you to be more specific. 
If you asked him why keep all this, he would say it's the natural thing to do once you are in possession of it. If you asked him why fight for the possession of it all to begin with, he would tell you that our freedoms and liberties rely on our ability to see and understand the world's arc through time, its understood past and its imagined futures, otherwise we are slaves to temporal dictators. Today, in the face of this war against temporal dictatorship, he is risking everything and more. He is waiting under a bridge, exposed to all elements whether they be human or meteorological. A stray dog ran by, and it might have been a spy. Dust fell from the overpass, and it might have been a spy. With the cunning ingenuity of the cleanup crews, really anything could be a spy. Your friends, the soles of your shoes, the homeless on the block, the anthropomorphic-shaped clouds dispersed through the gray could-be spy sky. He is under a bridge hoping to avoid detection, awaiting a delivery of significant historical and cultural value. He thinks of today as his Gettysburg, Though he has lost bits of hope knowing that across the world things are disappearing every day, he thinks this delivery would be a major victory for the liberty of the past. He spoke with a child just the other day who couldn't identify New York City on a map and couldn't name what the leader of the country used to be called. He said, hollow what? and then scampered away. The professor thought that the boy was ignorant to his shackles, but the boy wouldn't even have understood what shackles were or what the professor was referring to. The boy, even, could have been a spy. At 12.17, the courier is supposed to arrive. They have an intricate set of handshakes, passwords, codewords, dead drops, winks, slash, nudges to confirm each other's identities and that their intentions have not shifted nor reversed. It's 12.14 now, and a particularly menacing storm cloud, shaped like a spiked boot, is passing over the sun. Professor Gordon P. Fledgeworth briefly removes the extravagant contraption of eyeglasses, microscopes, telescopes, and other various lenses that he is prone to wearing on his face from his face. He looks tired. It has been approximately three years since he has removed the contraption in public, and his face looks precisely six years older than it did that fateful day approximately three years earlier. This battle is hard, he thinks and has thought before. This is a literally unending war. There will always be things to preserve as long as things are created, and the cleanup crew has resources like dogs and vehicles and lasers. He puts his gear back on and sees the world through a useful filter. It's 12.16. From the other side of the street, a shape walks forward. It is covered in some dark woolly fabric, like a wintry ghost. Its feet can barely be seen shuffling under the fabric, and the movement of its upper legs is entirely undetectable. At precisely a hundred and six yards' distance from Professor Gordon P. Fledgeworth, the woolly ghost removes its left hand from underneath the fabric and displays three fingers first, then two fingers, then four, then the shape of a fist, then a hard-to-describe flight motion, and then it crouches on its haunches like a beast. Professor Gordon P. Fledgeworth responds correctly, and then they walk to meet in the middle. On Thursdays I watched last Sunday's Mad Men, says the woolly ghost. I got this idea for bean dip on Pinterest, says Professor Gordon P. Fledgeworth. Brutus is an honorable man, says the woolly ghost. And Professor Gordon P. Fledgeworth hums several bars of a Billie Holiday song. It's out of tune, but still recognizable for true believers, for true freedom fighters. The woolly ghost removes its right arm from underneath the fabric and hands the professor a small sack made of the same woolly fabric, its contents heavy and dense. The professor opens the sack slightly, adjusts the focus of some of his lenses, and stares intently at the item inside the sack for 43 seconds. 
For a brief moment, at the stroke of the twenty-third second, he seems to pause and question what he sees. But it was a brief moment, and he is satisfied ultimately. He thanks the woolly ghost and begins to walk away with the sack in his possession. He turns back once to see the woolly ghost. As he does so, a whistling noise pierces the otherwise still soundscape, and a laser dart slices the air and settles in the vaguely neck-like shape belonging to the woolly ghost. Several seconds pass, and then the woolly ghost explodes. The cleanup crew is here in full force, and Professor Gordon P. Fledgeworth flees the scene with a high level of urgency, moving faster than you would expect for a man of his age, which is undeterminable, but above fifty-six at least. He slid through a gutter crack in the wall and disappeared. In the depths of the city he ran, cradling his item like a child. Most of the muscle in his body were engaged in his flight. Still many others were engaged and dedicated to preserving stillness around the item. Analytically speaking, he clearly cared about his life a great deal and clearly cared even more about the item. And it just might be that he only cared about his life to the extent that it was the instrument preserving the item. He shed one tear for the anonymous woolly ghost who had died an honorable death. He knew the sewer system better than anyone, and even if he didn't, he had left cryptic markers all around directing him in the safest and swiftest directions. He knew the cleanup crews would have blasted a hole around the crack he slipped through so that they could follow him, but he knew that he could outrun them down here, and their dogs wouldn't be able to smell him down here. His heart rate slowly lowered to a more manageable rate. He stepped on the dry spots so that no splashes echoed. He resisted looking back in the sack until he was safe. He activated several booby traps behind him. He walked the walk and fought the fight. Sweat trickled down his face and made the lens contraption chafe around his temples. He wiped at the sore and growing sorer spots with his left pinky finger. His right pinky finger was wrapped in a tight grip, parallel to the other fingers of his right hand on the sack and the item. It would have taken a lot of force in that moment to pry anything from Professor Gordon P. Fledgeworth's right hand. His right foot slipped and slammed into a puddle, and for seven seconds the splashing sound echoed through the sewers. He could hear his own heartbeat, and nothing else. He continued on, more careful, deeper into his maze. He went left, then left, then left, then right, then up three stair steps, then made sixteen rights then lifted a plywood sheet and climbed through the hole that it had previously covered, down, down a ladder with seventeen rungs, and when he reached the floor he crawled one hundred yards through a crawl space until being able to stand again, at which point he went left, left, right, left, right, 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 straight for thirteen hundred and thirty-six feet, and then left once more. He deemed at this point that he was safe enough, for now. He sat down on the ground and placed the sack on the floor. It clanged with weight. He pulled it open and removed the item. Its unmistakable, sad, hopeful greenness splashed off the gray walls of the professor's surrounding circumstances. He smiled victoriously. He smiled knowingly. He had a piece of the Berlin Wall and had had it for years, which was impressive and important. But now he held a piece of the Statue of Liberty in his hands, part of the eye he had been told, though it was hard to verify. It was a large piece, barely liftable, barely concealable. He wept for the fact that it was separated from its other pieces. He wept for the fact that not only did the boy not know New York City on a map, but he surely would not have been able to recognize its icon at fullest height, nor the words at its base. Where are those words now? The letters and symbols that once held such meaning, would they hold meaning or form again? He fell asleep with the piece as a pillow, dreaming of jigsaw wonders of the world being put together again. 
the pyramids, the Statue of Liberty, Rushmore, the Leaning Tower, and the books that could be formed again would be read aloud and not in hushed tones by candlelight. He slept soundly and safely. Miles away, deterred but not defeated, members of the cleanup crew sat on rubble smoking cigarettes. One of them, barely out of her teen years, rubbed dandruff off her shaved scalp. She wielded few words as blunt instruments and cursed that fucker who ran off with the trash. Garbage rats. Sewer boys. One day, she thought, she'll smoke them out of their dens. They hold on to their trash because they had no vision. They cling to the past because the future isn't for them. The world spins in only one direction, she thought, quoting her instructor. She saw desolation all around her, but she didn't see history. She had concerns that were tangible and feelings that hurt and lifted, but she had no reason to tie them to fairy tales. She rejected God and other idols. She saw the trash as pagan. She had burnt that wooled heathen and lit her cigarette on its sparkling ash. She dipped a stick in that ash and drew symbols on the street to mark her territory. She knew the rain would wash it away in a matter of hours so that she wasn't committing a crime. She wasn't leaving a mark. She wasn't sending a message or time-traveling or anything. She didn't have a name. Her dog did. She didn't need one because she was no one's slave, so she had no one to answer to. What need do liberated men and women have of the shackles of names? She didn't have a story. This isn't her story. She kept her eyes forward because the one time she turned, she hurt her neck and had to miss out on something. When her hair was cut, she burned it in a pile with her most recent defecation. They couldn't rid the world of smells of the past, but they could overpower them. She put out her cigarette, but never on her arm because scars were sacrilege. She didn't sing songs. She hummed random notes. She felt free outside for a passing moment, and maybe more, but she had no interest in remembering if the feeling came from anywhere, if it had an origin. She wondered why they were there, sitting in the middle of a ruined city, smoking by the ruined hole of a sewer. She couldn't remember if there even was a reason. Sam French is a writer and director located in Brooklyn. Originally from Florida, he is a recent graduate of Carnegie Mellon University. His plays have been produced in Pittsburgh, Florida, Martha's Vineyard, and New York. His short story, A Love Letter to the Boys of Summer, won the Adamson Award for Fiction at CMU. Sam was named a Top 20 Artist Under 25 in the Tampa area by Creative Loafing Magazine and has two one-acts published by Baker's Plays. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or visit us at our webpage, brickmoonfiction.com.